Monday, July 31st, 2017. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 125 of the 5049 podcast. That music that you hear back there, that's Taku Unami and Devin DeSanto. It's a live record. It was recorded at the last Amplify Festival, the Friedman Gallery in New York City. And it was recently released on the record label, Erstwhile. Erstwhile Records started in 1999. It was founded and continues to be run by John Abbey. John Abbey is our guest on the show today. John Abbey of Erstwhile Records. Let's listen a little more. For almost 20 years, John Abbey has been at the center of a very specific music world. So specific, in fact, that uh, I'm a little nervous on how to do this intro because I know a lot of the people in and around that music world have some pretty strong beliefs. Uh, But John's an interesting guy, and I'm glad to have him on the show today. Today on the show, John Abbey. So as I tell John on the show today, I first became aware of the erstwhile record label probably about 10 years ago. Uh, There was a moment, and I I assume that many of you are already familiar with erstwhile records and the sort of very specific place that it occupies within the world of free improvised music and electroacoustic music. This stuff uh, really sort of came on my radar about 10 years ago when I really began to take an interest in the trumpet playing of Greg Kelly. Um. There's a lot of names that people use for for this music uh, that on the erstwhile label specifically is sort of based around um, post-AMM artists and people like Keith Rowe. Even saying those words, post-AMM, I, I, there's something, this music is, is very indescribable yet very specific. Does that make any sense? Um, John himself, you know, he started this label in 1999 and I think think rather quickly uh sort of positioned his label as like the go-to place for this this music that honestly right now anytime i i begin to put forth a, a description i feel like i'm already pissing someone off and i i certainly don't want to do that um but you know a lot of this very uh this music that's you know meant for focused listening small sounds abstract sounds people like keith rowe and and gunter mueller um, in the time that John, since he has started this label, you know, I, I, I feel pretty confident saying that erstwhile is like the go-to place for this stuff. And, you know, it's almost like the blue note of, of whatever you call this music. Some people call it electroacoustic improvisation. Some people call it lowercase. Um, it's very tactile music and, and certainly erstwhile has, created a central place where the very best uh, of this kind of stuff exists. And in having John over my apartment to have this conversation, uh, which I was really excited to have happen, 
I became, you know, through John, aware of the fact that uh, he also uh, was quite known for a while as being an online provocateur, getting into it with some people on uh, some message boards. And, and uh, John has cultivated a very singular identity, you know, through the label as well as, you know, being someone online that argues about music, um, which I wish more people were doing. Doesn't seem to happen, you know. It seems like there's a to use a current term, you know, lots of microaggressions on Facebook and Twitter, but you know, long format discussions where people aren't afraid to say what they think. I kind of wish there was more of that. One thing I really dig about erstwhile um, is the direct relationship that the label cultivates with its listeners. Um, I, I, you know, I in my music collection probably have five to ten erstwhile records i'm by no means an erstwhile aficionado um or dedicated fan but you know it's a very homespun label uh there's a consistent look to the packaging a consistent uh you know you know when you have an erstwhile record and you know from what i can tell john communicates pretty directly with the people that are attracted to his label and i like that that's something i seek to cultivate with this podcast with my own label uh with my own listeners um i know i can be sort of standoffish and aloof at times which you know is not my favorite quality about myself but it is there's there's something i i feel like if you're making small music on small labels you know it's kind of your role to be in direct contact with people and i think john does a good job of that at this point, there's over 100, maybe 150 releases in the erstwhile catalog, and there is a lot of top-shelf listening to be found there. If you want to find out more about erstwhile records, go to erstwhilerecords.com. Uh, I'm going to keep this intro up top kind of short because I'm sick and I kind of feel like shit right now. But if you're new to this music, you know, go to the label. Go to erstwhilerecords.com and dip in. Uh, you're not going to find it anywhere else. It's not on iTunes. It's, it's not on Spotify or any of those other services. You want the music, you go to the label, and you get it directly. That's it. I hope you guys are all doing well. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate and review it in iTunes. And uh, here's my conversation with John Abbey. 2001, 2002. Yeah, I was into the CDs pretty early on, and uh, I was into that he sold them so cheaply. It was like he gave most of them of away. Yeah, well, I mean, six or seven bucks. But yeah, yeah I mean, to, but to us public, uh, they were so cheap that it was like I could, I felt like I could buy them, listen to them once, enjoy them, and then like kind of not listen to them again. But it was like a different kind of consumption. Right. There's something, and you know, this is certainly something we should talk about. Uh, there's something to me, and there always has been something very attractive about like that direct communication with. A very esoteric source of information. Yeah. Um, like for that to get those Jandek records, you can get them at, you know, in the no record stores like Amoeba and stuff, but you basically have to write to this weird P.O. box. Right. And then this like unmarked package will show up. Right. Which, I, did, I did it through distributors. I did it through probably through forced exposure and either other music or before them, Kim's. Wait, so you went to Columbia. What did you study at Columbia? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't the best student. I, uh, he got into Columbia. You must have been pretty good. No, I had really good boards, and uh, I was a good fencer, and the coach helped get me in. I mean, I was, I was really smart, but uh, I am not good. I was, I've never been good at um, being – or we're not recording it, right? Yeah, we're going. Oh, we are? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I've never been good at being told, um, like, how to learn something. Like, I'll read 
if there's 20 books in the course, I'll, I'll, you know, maybe read 15 of them on my own, but yeah. not in the same order that, uh, I'm being told to. I just like to explore things my own way. And so I was never good at education. Also, I think that, uh, it's a whole big topic, but I think that people, kids in America get pushed into college too young when most of them are not really ready to learn. They just want to grow up. And so they, you yeah. know, they spend all this money to party and, uh, Kids should go to school a couple of years later. I, think. I agree. Kids should go to college a couple. I, years I went later. to college very briefly, <laughs> uh, but I remember you would see like in every class I ever took had like one what was described as a non traditional student, mm-hmm. and it would be like a thirty five or forty year old woman who was there, you know, five minutes early for every class, taking you know the most descriptive notes and asking the most interesting questions, and everyone was always like, "What's up with this person?" And it's like, <laughs> "Yeah, they actually value." The right. experience and the right, education right, right and it's so much money i i always recommend to kids these days to uh if you know exactly what you want to do with it especially if you want to go into academia or you yeah. want to go to a professional school then do it but like don't just do it because it's the next step it's like it's too much money and and it doesn't yeah i would i would say in fact i often give really bad advice to people which is you're not dumb you don't need to go to school <laughs> i i mean yeah i don't put it in those words but yeah i i I think it's a kind of a scam. It doesn't really um, traditional undergrad doesn't really prepare you for anything. Also, you, you, you didn't, you know, what are you do? I was I was just figuring out things I was interested in by the end of college, right? Um, but I really spent. I actually came three courses short of a double major in uh, computer science and history, which is pretty amusing because I really did not go to class much, and uh, <laughs> I. It was really it's a it's a long amusing story, uh, but I really barely graduated to yeah. the point where, when I saw that I got when they at the end they um, everyone stands in line to get a diploma and they don't want to embarrass you, so they give you a closed envelope uh-huh. and in there is either a diploma or like the reasons why you didn't get it. Like, but you know ahead of time what's going to be in there. Nope. What the fuck kind of dramatic game is that? Well, because they're still it's uh. They're finishing things, you know, like they're grading their your um the last grades are coming in and sometimes they hold people back for uh they owe library fines or something uh-huh. to the school library. You gotta be kidding me. Yeah. Well, I mean it's just like you clear it up and then you know you get it two right, weeks later they, or whatever. They can't tell you ahead of the ceremony, hey look, you know, there's these outstanding issues. We're gonna invite you to walk or whatever. I think they want everyone to walk together and then kinda of they clear up the bureaucracy later. Is more what it is. It <laughs> I, I feels mean, like it is. It's a little messed up, but yeah. So you don't know, and uh, I, I couldn't believe it when I actually got one. I high five. Open the envelope, and you're like, I made it. Yeah. yeah. And your degree was in history or was in computer science? History. It's like with a minor things, in computer like, science. Okay, so you have a an under you have a bachelor's degree in history. How do you make your millions with that? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's there's a uh, there's things you can do. I mean, it's it's. You know, you can always you can always go to Wall Street if you know the right people with a history degree. I mean, I think so. It's just about knowing the right people. I yeah. Think. Uh, I actually got a job. Um, I was already working part time because of people I knew at Time Magazine, mm-hmm. and uh, I worked there for a while. Doing um, what? I started off uh, the cliched thing. I actually started off in the mailroom mm-hmm. where uh, Hunter Thompson and and Dick Cavett started. Before they were me. in that same mailroom. Yeah, delivering mail around. To, no, not at the same time, obviously. Not at the same time, but... That's I, how they started the also. Building, the same building, the same... It was at that time, yes. Yeah. The the famous Time Life building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was kind of crazy. Um, 
we had it was my part-time job in college so i would i would come down and work overnight sometimes and uh they still had this pneumatic tube system have you ever seen one of those (laughs) they're awesome (laughs) so it was like three floors and yeah you would shoot things around and uh there weren't even really, or maybe like a really basic computer system still, yeah. but, you know, we would get wires and have to rip wire stories off and bring like a nice pile of them into the editors Yeah, on a teletype, I guess it is. And uh, yeah, it was fun. Yeah. You know, there is something cool about that. I think I think offices are probably less exciting now because it, it is all email and it is all... Like there's some, there's something very exciting about that tube system. There was and, like a history there. Like I, if you went if you went to Time Today, I don't think there would be nearly as no. much of a history. Or you went to the New York Times, maybe some, but uh, yeah, not as much. Well, like if you go to the Village Vanguard, whether you're an, an audience member or a performer, like clearly there's something special about this room. A right. lot has happened sure. here, and you're engaging with the room in the exact same way that people were doing 50, 60 years ago. Yep. If you go to some newly renovated office building, right, and some like millennial looks up from their phone to greet you, it's it's not the same. It's not the same thing. No, no. The room and the atmosphere is all. Were people important. smoking at their desks when you were there? Probably. When was this? Uh, I graduated college in '88, so I started there maybe '86. Oh, people were definitely smoking at their desks. You know, I don't remember the smoking, so I'm not totally sure about that. But what they were doing is, we closed on Friday nights, and they had an alcohol cart that they would bring around, and like people would just get trashed, yeah. like uh, and work. And and work well, like it right. wasn't, yeah, because no, they're functioning alcoholics, yeah, <laughs> or barely. I don't yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you were you graduated college in '88. Yep. So while you were at Columbia, were you coming downtown to check out music? Music was a little different. Music, I, um, I got, I, I always loved music, um, but back then it was harder to discover experimental stuff. Like everything Even was with linear. The radio station there. I wasn't so into the radio station, yeah. and it's all jazz, um, and I wasn't so into jazz until after college. I'm actually um, very good friends with Ben Ratliff, uh-huh. who was uh, a year behind me at Columbia, okay, um, and who I met right after college, like friends of friends, and uh, we're still really good friends, and I discovered some stuff through him, but... In college, uh, I didn't. I didn't really start listening to jazz or experimental music. I mean, experimental music covers so many things. Sure. But until after college, for the most part. And and how did you find your way to that? I mean, one thing I always point to was my friends brought me um, to a crazy Sun Ra concert in Central Park, uh-huh. and I had no idea who Sun Ra was. And it was just like you know a, a May or a June afternoon, and they were like. Let's go down to the park and see this guy, Sun Ra. And we got there um, just as it was starting, and we went and we sat up front. Like, it was outdoors, and um, I'm sitting 10 feet away from this, and I literally no idea what to expect. Right. And, and you're literally watching aliens play music. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Something not from this world, it really seemed like. Right. And, uh, yeah, really, really mind-blowing. And, and I credit that as my first kind of exposure to experiment, any kind of experiment. I feel like Sun Ra occupies that place in many people's lives and histories. And I also feel like I, as a listener, am so – I miss those opportunities of being exposed to something for which you have absolutely no context. It's like the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. Yeah, yes and no. It is if it's great. Right. The problem is usually it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean you can do that you know like there was an all-day concert yesterday where there were you know 12 or 15 people playing and 
in someone's backyard and you know you could i didn't have any idea about most of them and i could go to that and sit through but i'm Did too you old and cranky no i don't have the tolerance for that. <laughs> no. no no i'm i'm for concerts these days i really um i kind of i'm i'm really picky about what i listen to i i i prefer um silence or ambient sound over listening to music most of the time i mean i've and, gathered that from the record label that you run. Well, and uh, that's a different discussion. And um, I just, I know what I like. And uh, a lot of times if I'm going to concerts, it's either see something I'm interested in or sometimes to confirm to myself that I'm not interested in something. Wait, for real? Sure. Like you think to yourself, I've never been interested in that music. I'm going to go check it out live so I can officially... Kind of. Not that music, but... uh, this person is in town. They're not in town very often. I'm pretty sure I am not interested so much in their music, but I won't get so many chances to see them sure. live. And so, you know, let me check them out. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's kind of part of my job. I mean, yeah. to an extent, you know, if, and then that's, if that's just stuff, if it's kind of borders on the area that I'm interested in. Right. I mean, I, I think within anything, like I heard, um, I saw this conversation between Jerry Seinfeld and Chris Rock, and they had this moment in the conversation where, like, some whoever was moderating the conversation was like, "Do you? How often do, are you gut laughing, laughing out loud?" And they both had the response of like, "The best response I ever have is, oh, that's really funny.'" <laughs> <laughs> and it, certainly with music, you know, like, it's easy to get jaded, and uh, but thankfully, there's still stuff. There is still stuff that um, is really exciting. I think for me, and if it ever gets to the point where I can't find that stuff anymore then i think it's time to to stop or to do something else but i i still can find that stuff i think oh the equivalent of the equivalent of gut laughing in my uh, right but do you still spend much time looking at history for music what do you mean looking at history i mean like i just i just bought a charlie parker box set oh no i feel like i've been through all that pretty much yeah yeah i mean there's when i yeah this is i'm i'm unusual this way um, I don't know many serious listeners like this, but I will explore uh, an area of music or a musician, and then a lot of the time I will get to the point where I just hit this tipping point and I'm totally done. So a recent example, which is crazy to me, is mm-hmm. late Morton Feldman. I was so into it, and yeah. I have I pretty close, uh, pretty solid, not complete discography because mm-hmm. no one has that. But I have a lot, and I've listened to hundreds, multiple of hours. recordings I've, of the yeah, same yeah, piece, yeah, yeah. And you know enough to like give my opinions on which mm-hmm. are the best, and and then I just hit a point where I f- kind of feel like I'm not going to get anything out of this anymore. Like I've 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 internalized it. I know it. There's no surprise here left to me. There's no. There's nothing. I'm just not interested anymore. Mm-hmm. And I got a three CD set of Tilbury doing something who's even my favorite interpreter. And I, I put it on and I stopped it after 10 minutes. I was just like, I, I just don't, I've moved on. And, yeah. and I don't know many, I, I always ask people and I don't think many people, many there's many other people like that, but that's just the way I, that's just the way but, I function. But, but in that situation, are you sitting down actively listening or do you put it on while you do things around your house? Uh, yeah, either. Uh, I don't do that anymore. I, I, I mostly actively listen. If I'm doing things around my house there, I usually don't listen to anything now. Yeah. I mean, I listened to so, so, so much music for so many years and then some, my living situation changed. So it wasn't quite as easy. 
um, it was a little a little bit more of an effort to um, to really play loud music and sit in loud music. But then also, um, I got married to a Japanese woman, Yuko Zama, who's mm-hmm. a former, well, still a, a a music writer. And I actually met her. She was assigned to interview me when I did a festival in Japan, mm-hmm. and she she used to write for uh, Swing Journal in mm-hmm. and. And all over the place. And uh, she's a really serious listener also. And she kind of helped teach me that if you somehow, once you get to a certain point of listening in your life, like you've listened to a certain amount of music, not being immersed in music all the time helps you hear music better. In A hundred percent. Yeah. I would absolutely agree with that. And uh, and that's just kind of what we... So I, I listen to music... Um, when I need to or when I want to, and I still like I I can make editing decisions on huge abstract pieces really quickly. Like on the first listen, like you mean when we, you're doing work for your label? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean we we just did this thing, um, the Keith Rowe Michael Passaro, which was two hundred and forty minute takes of the same piece, and yes. um, we decided that I decided that, and and they were into it that the best the best way to document it was to take the two takes because they had similarities. There were underpinnings, pre-recorded tracks on each and to crossfade between the two takes. Sure. Um, and so everything is still kind of in real time, like, but it's been real time between the two. And I put that together almost in real time, like on one listen, like uh-huh. pretty close to the, the final thing. And that's, I think I have a very good memory for abstract music and I can, um, uh-huh. Well, I, I mean, assemble it that way. How much when you're listening? How much uh, structure are you listening for? Like, what's your first entry point when you start listening? Well, that's a strange question for me. Um, I, I don't know. I never thought well, of it. I don't think of it in those. In but that if way. I if I if I put on a piece of music right now, you know, uh, what what is a quality that might immediately draw you in? I mean, it depends what kind of music it is. You yeah. know, I walk around all day listening to Houston hip hop. Uh, yeah, like chop and screw stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my stuff. Yeah. Um, and UGK also the the '90s stuff. Uh huh. Um, but yeah, DJ DJ Screw is a real. He, he's like the guy. He's like yeah. the Coltrane of that world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if I if I said, hey, I'm gonna put on this piece of music right now. It's a it's a cello, a sine wave, and uh, that's it, you know. Right. Like, where, where's your, where's your? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I would just listen and take it on. I think the answer is I would take it on its own terms. You yeah. know, I, the really interesting thing to me. I mean, I came as a listener. I came through jazz, um, then through first generation European free improv, uh-huh. deeply, deeply immersed in, in both of those things uh, for for a period and. What I like about the area I work in is that it kind of, to an extent, creates its own sound world with each new record. It could even yeah. be it could be overlapping musicians and a different sound world. So I guess that's the answer: is that I I try to learn the rules of that sound world and try to um, to kind of judge it and place it within there and mm-hmm. see if it's connecting to me and see see if it's interesting to me. So much music. Just a little more. Some so much music, I find almost instantly boring. Like mm-hmm. I know what it's going to be. I know what it's going to do. It, it may be beautiful in and of itself, but it, I don't care. Yeah, right. Um, 
I think the the yeah, the the structure is interesting to me, and just kind of the yeah the unique sound world. If that's not too strict. Uh, no, that's that's that makes perfect sense. I mean, I don't know that there's a good answer to that question. There's many answers to that question, and I think. Um, well, uh, let me ask you this: So, when did record labels become important to you? That's a good question. Um, I would say that's a very good question um, because all of the record there in in the early 90s there were a lot of really exciting um independent experimental labels yeah. that i found really inspiring labels like uh corpus hermeticum out of new zealand uh streamline that that christoph heman ran there were some in the um in the euro free improv world like random acoustics from georg grave is a mm-hmm. is a really like great proto worst label if you if you look at the roster on there and then like the first few years of Erst, it's almost like a, like a direct lineage. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, some of it anyway. Uh, so I would say there, I say maybe in the, in the five years before I started Erst, which was 98, uh, that I, I, those, those labels all inspired me, that kind of thing. But um, as when you were as, as a, f- a fan of music, sure. um, I remember very early on, I started listening to shit, you know, when I was six years old. Sure. Uh, and I would look at, I remember still looking at my first albums and I would wonder, what is Capitol Records? I don't understand what that is. And then very quickly, you know, I began to learn, you know, oh, you know, if, I, I don't I don't need to re-illustrate, you know, why we trust labels, but. No, labels are crucial to me. Like, uh, um, even now, you know, New York Review of Books or Criterion and Films, like. Yeah. I have res- I have a real respect for the people that curate those, and if there's something on there, I'm going to give it a little more attention and see if I'm interested just because they're they're curating it. But with music, I think when I was first, you know, listening to things like the Rolling Stones and the Talking Heads and the B-52s, labels weren't so. I didn't notice them so much. There was no real pattern. There was right. just mostly major labels and. Um, even later when I was listening to things like the Minutemen and that kind of thing, I didn't really explore labels. So I would say, I would say it was later. Um, but in, in it certainly at some point became like a main, a main way for me to investigate, uh, music. Well, I mean, certainly, you know, you said the Minutemen, like kind of, you know, going back to where we started with Jandek, I have to imagine that when you first start discovering SST records in the eighties, like again, it's a kind of a direct you're you're accessing the stuff pretty directly. Right, but again I didn't I didn't. I bought the Minuteman records at, you know, maybe Tower Records or yeah. other music and I don't think I ever looked into other SST things. Okay. I just didn't do it that way. I had a friend in college who had a trouser press guide and uh uh I explored basically he was amazing actually. He had a trouser press guide, and then an insane vinyl library. Even though he had come halfway across the country to Columbia, he had brought this uh, basically huge vinyl library, and almost anything that sounded interesting in the trouser press guide was in his library, and yeah. so I could check it out. And that was that was a way I learned about a lot of great stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's so you know I I run a very small label. I only put out my own shit. Uh, okay. That being said, you know I the artists that I appear on my releases are my favorite artists. So I feel sure. really good about it. Um, 
but it, I, it's just like I, to, I, don't, I don't I don't think the value of a label will ever go away if you are of a certain mindset and you enjoy that curated experience and you know certainly like you said the Criterion Collection you, not only do they have this amazingly curated series of films that's huge and expansive and you could explore that world until you die but you you know that you're going to get the very best version of what right. they're presenting right right and that's something i try to do also uh is um of course we you know we only have so much budget but i i think the presentation is really important my wife uh has taken over a lot of the designing and does amazing work and yeah i'm i'm, I'm always a little bummed when people buy just downloads because I think the presentation of the object is is really important, and maybe that's me showing my age a little bit. But to me, to me, the physical object is really important. People have asked me if I would I ever just sell downloads and not make physical objects, and I I don't think I could do that. It's it's a little too depressing for me. Well, so check this out. Someone just gave me this the other day. This is a friend of mine who's a pretty amazing clarinetist. This label put this out and. The, set, the music itself is download only. This is the physical, physical document. It's the score to the piece. Right. Ben Owen does some of these too. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I, I've been sort of thinking about that direction. You know, maybe just release a piece of art that people can enjoy with a download code. Yeah, that's nice. I'm just, I don't know. I try to stick to, to, to things that I believe in until I absolutely can't anymore. And uh I like the I like the CD. Did you always want to be uh, a label? No. Like what, um, what was the the thing that finally said, "Okay, I'm going to I'm going right. to do this." When I So, after I graduated college in 88, I I listened to more and more music and uh kind of explored farther and farther out. Um I was still working at time and then I got a buyout there and A buyout? Yeah. Oh, you got you got laid off. Yeah. Okay. But I had been there a while. I got almost a year salary. And, oh, shit. Um, yeah, back in the days when there was union protection. And uh, <laughs> and so I wanted to do something. One thing I tried to do before erstwhile was I I was uh, longtime friends with the other music guys. Yeah. And I tried to get them. They were not online. And I said, I'll get you guys online. This is what, like late 90s? Yeah, 98. They took a while yeah. to get online. Yeah. And... Uh, I said, just you know, split split the business with me, and uh, I'll put you online, and you can sell a lot of stuff through there. But they, I don't know if you know their background. They were almost like minimum wage employees at Kim's before they started other music. I don't know if you oh, know I didn't that. know that. Oh yeah, it's a great story. They, the in before other music, maybe the best record store in the city was the Kim's on Bleecker Street, uh-huh. and all those guys were working there. Also, if you know Keith from the No Neck Blues Band. Mm-hmm. Um, he was their experimental buyer at Kim's. Okay. And uh, they quit on Moss without telling anyone and started uh, other music. And so they really wanted control of everything, understandably, and they, they weren't interested in my help. They, they quit uh, sort of to spite Mr. Kim? Partly, and uh, he wasn't, yeah, he, yeah. I mean, but also I think they he didn't, they didn't want him like uh, squashing their, their new business. So he... They, Mondo, Mondo Kim's on St. Mark's. Right. Honestly, it's probably my favorite record store in New York history. Okay. Uh, in my history with yeah. New York. But I know so many people that worked at that place and all have horror stories. Yeah, yeah that came a little later. They opened later um, and they weren't. The cool thing about Kim's on Bleecker was that it was so small and so like intense. Yeah. You know, like 
everything in there was carefully picked because they just didn't have much space. Right. And yeah, that was a that was a great store. Mondo was a little; it was much bigger, and uh, the employees weren't nearly as. Con- they were just employees. Like they weren't. They weren't. They didn't care so much about what you bought or right. They, you know, I I frequently felt judged by them, which to me is like a good sign. Like yeah. I enjoyed that. <laughs> Maybe I didn't interact with them as much. Um, I mean, I you know, I would. I remember once I um, and the reason I did this was explain. I explained this to the guy, but I was bringing in a bunch of CDs to trade in, and I woke up one day and I was sick to death of Fela Kuti. I never wanted to hear Fela Kuti again. Who I was just listening to on the way here. So I brought like twenty Fela Kuti CDs to the yeah. store, and uh, the guy's buying. He's like, "What's going on, man? Are you de-Africanizing your life?" And uh, I said, "No, I work at a coffee shop." And I didn't have to say anything more. He was like, <laughs> "It's like I get That's it, funny. I get it." And he gave me like a really generous trade in. That's funny. You see, Fela is someone I think. For whatever reason, and I really don't know why, I feel like I could never get sick of him. I could never hit that tipping point. Mo- many summers, I try to play his entire catalog in my headphones over the summer. Really? Yeah. I when when I when it comes to me getting sick of music to where I never want to hear it again, or I don't even really want to give something a chance, it's almost always an association thing. That makes sense. I cannot enjoy the uh, music of Bob Marley because of the frat boys. Yeah, a lot of people have that. I love Bob Marley also, but a lot, a lot of people have that. Like Bob it's, Marley. it's a little unfortunate because uh, everyone just plays legend, and there's uh, to me, he's like you know, he's a genius, like Charlie Parker, or Hank Williams, without or, question. You know, and, on uh, that level, no yeah. question. And uh, and it's to be, because you're in the majority there. I think so many people have that. Well, no, no. I'm in the majority of like snooty listeners. I'm not in the majority right. of listeners no, because no. the majority of listeners loves No Woman, No Cry. Although I think actually the majority of listeners listens to that in college and then probably never revisits it again. Well, when they go on vacation with their families to a resort yeah, and they're maybe. doing like Jaeger shots, they probably do. <laughs> maybe, 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 maybe. But, uh, so certainly like that, yeah, I, I hate that that's the case, but I re- end up rejecting a lot of music. And, and in my life, I've been turned around i hated the music of bob dylan growing up because that's what my parents listened to now it's some of the most important music of my life yeah i mean and whatever i think it's important for everyone to realize that no one's gonna like everything you can only listen to so much you can't listen to everything so you don't need to explore everything you don't need to love everything you know you you can like what you like and i think that's a really freeing thing it takes a while to get there it definitely does (laughs) no it definitely does and i i do think it's it's better to come to that out of knowledge than out of ignorance Uh um but i also think it's an important you have to you have to realize you just can't hear everything right so when you so you approach the guys at other music and the original idea was what a distribution service online just i was gonna sell yeah exactly i was gonna put their store online it wasn't even like a deeply thought out idea um and uh yeah thanks for bringing me back to that so then so they said no and uh, i had to figure out what else to do and yeah i thought i would start a label and it's funny when i started i didn't have it was i was way all over the map like in my ideas i have i have an idealist like an original idealist that i wrote down of things and there were like obscure kraut rock reissues that Uh hadn't come out yet or um Cecil Taylor at that point hadn't really been recorded much for like the last decade and I wanted to do some Cecil Taylor and it was really it was like all over the map but it happened to kind of coincide with what to me was a really exciting development in the music which was live electronics coming into yeah. free improv mm-hmm. and 
so I think I helped with that a lot, but also I got really lucky with the timing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, but I mean, I feel like I'll, not just labels, every, a lot of things start out quite differently from where they end up. And obviously that, that there's a bit to, to be said for, for erstwhile with that. What were your original aesthetic considerations? I wanted to document musicians who I thought were underdocumented. Uh-huh. And that was it really. I didn't have like a clear-cut overarching thing. Like I definitely because I came out of jazz and free improv, I definitely for a long time and st- it's still in me kind of a purist improv aesthetic. Uh a little bit like like Eminem or Incas, mm-hmm. um, but I think kind of updated, like trying to, one thing I tried to do, I guess, from the start was to bring producer instincts to the world of free improv, which hadn't really had them before. It was, you know, you, you, people tried to recreate live concerts on records and you can't really do that. There are different experiences, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think part of what I did, which was kind of novel in that area at the time, was say, a record is a record. Let's make records. A studio you know? date. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's make let's make records. And and that's still, you know, I have plenty of records, especially plenty of releases early on um, that are not only like entire meetings, but like entire first meetings, like unedited. Right. And that was your idea. Yeah, I mean, every project is different. I. I also never liked, um, like Manfred Eicher and ECM was always kind of the antithesis of what I wanted to do uh, because he takes everything and puts it through his filter, Mm -hmm. you know, and all the art looks the same and all the sound is the same and it homogenizes the music to me where, again, my interest is what I said earlier, the different sound worlds and the kind of unique sound worlds. And so one of the exciting things about Erstwhile to me has always been taking a new project and putting myself into the specific headspace of that project Mm -hmm. and changing my own um, taste and ideas to best maximize and to best produce that project, even if it conflicts a little bit with some of my own taste. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you're almost learning a new language for each project Mm -hmm. while still bringing your own experience to bear especially as it gets on in years and I have more and more experience. Uh, but that's something that, that always, uh, that's something that always excited me. But has the consist, has, has defining consistency always been attractive to you? What do you mean? Like, define? where do you introduce con- consistency into the label? Like that, that, I, that to me, one of the most attractive things to a record about a record label to me right. is when they establish a strong sense of consistency in the presentation of the work. Not to say that the music's all the same, but like here's the art like if you want you want the whole series right. because it feels like Oh, a I see your question. Okay. So there is consistency, but to me the interesting thing always was, you know, rather than having uh impulse which looks the same on every yeah. spine, there is consistency. Like the erstwhile logo is always in the same font. There's always an erstwhile patch on the back. But to me, the interesting thing was to take this really wide range of music and to make people create that consistency in their own head. Mm-hmm. And and it's funny how many times people say, oh, that sounds like erstwhile. When if you kind of go through what erstwhile sounds like, there's a really wide range. You know, mm-hmm. it's like... And so that's – my idea of consistency, I'd say, is more subtle 
than it's it's the the quality standards. Hopefully, it's in the the on almost every release. There's a very good sound quality, mm-hmm. however it's created. Um, uh, we work really hard on the design. Like there's there every everything is there for a reason. Um, and the record is always it's it's never like haphazardly assembled. You know, it's there's it's assembled for a very specific reason. So I think. I think that my taste comes through, mm-hmm. and especially the more people listen, the, the more releases they listen to. I'm amazed when I, I usually put out releases in pairs, and sometimes I like to put out wildly conflicting pairs, like a crazy noise record and like a, a very silent Vondelweiser type thing. And people will almost always just buy the pair. And I love that. Like, I love that um, they trust me enough to do that. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember um, when you had booked a couple of weeks at the Stone, maybe 2011. 2011. Yep. Um, and I popped in one night just to kind of check things out. And <laughs> I remember feeling like I walked into a room where everyone that was there had been there for every show. They all knew each other. And when I walked in, they were like, who's that guy? <laughs> there was definitely, there was a little of that. Um, there was one kid who came to those two weeks who put off his put off going to college for a semester to come to go to go to all those which is that was that was so impressive and he says he t- he tells me all the time like he's really glad he did it um and that was an amazing two weeks yeah uh, yeah but i definitely got a sense of like not only because i mean i you know we changed I, the stone also like we brought our own sound system right. which people never do we put the speakers in the basement we ran our own sound um and yeah, it was a different kind of thing. We had I the way I tried to to help people get their money back was a lot of people played three, four, five uh, that, shows in yeah. a row. Yeah, because people you brought people in from out of town. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was um... well, another crazy thing about that was uh, there were I had some Japanese musicians there, and there were uh, people flew from Tokyo to come see that festival and. So like uh, Taku Unami and Toshi Nakamura came, and they were like they knew people in the audience who had like flown from Tokyo. That is really funny. Yeah, it's always man. I I uh, well no, I'll say that for another time. Um, it's all right. So when you so when you started the label, did you already have a relationship with the artists that you wanted to work with, or were you kind of cold calling people that you wanted? That's another very good question. Uh, no, I didn't know anyone. Um, I was just a fan. And the way I started, actually, the one person I kind of knew was uh, I was friends with Denman Maroney's son, uh, Tyler. Uh-huh. Okay. And I knew him from time. And uh, you, you must know Denman, right? I know Denman, you know Denman yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't know him personally, but right, I certainly yeah. know who he is. Um, and he was a guy really under-recorded. Yeah. Uh, I thought he was great. And um, so I got him together. Another thing I do that's pretty different is I've always um, – I I'm almost exclusively work with duos. I always mm-hmm. have. That's the that's the thing that interests me. For a long time, I, I as a listener, even... that's what interests you. Yes. Well, as a listener, it's a little different. But as as something I can kind of add to the add to the world. Like I, for a long time, I didn't. I felt like there was no reason for me to release solos. Like there's plenty of ways to release solos. But by kind of creating these new duos, I was if they worked, I was helping the music. I was creating this new. Um, kind of partnership that could lead to you're, you're talking about a situation where you're calling up two people and saying hey you guys should play together yes okay. but it's gotten different in recent years but a lot of times i went with what i call familiar but unfamiliar so it wasn't like uh 
it was people who knew each other and who maybe hadn't worked as a duo before. So actually, um, with Denman, I hooked him up with Earl Howard, and mm-hmm. they they went back decades. Like I think they maybe even went to college together, and they even had a, a Stockhausen recording from a long time ago. Um, but they hadn't recorded as a duo. So it's it's that idea of familiar but unfamiliar. I feel like the musicians in this area are such quick problem solvers that mm-hmm. it's very easy for recording to sound boring and, and stale because they're, they're, it's too comfortable. And this kind of balance of familiar but unfamiliar can it can be great but also still kind of exciting, still a little bit dangerous, still a mm-hmm. little bit... Um, there's something there. So again, every project is different. But uh, so yeah, so um, so I knew Denman. Then I went to Cambridge in England to uh, a, a lunchtime show that Simon Fell and Mark Wastel and Rodri Davies were playing. And um, I asked Simon Fell if he would do a record for me. And we exchanged a lot of tapes and stuff. And, and, and he did what ended up being 001. And uh, then also Lauren Connors' uh, Haunted House Band was playing around then, and they were fantastic. And <laughs> that was a funny thing where Lauren, I don't know how he is now, but he wouldn't be recorded on DAT even. He only would record himself on analog cassettes. Huh. It was like... Like, like eighth-inch tape? Yeah, it was like... Uh, it was like, uh, you know, one of those things where... Um, who's the the tribe that thinks photographs will like, like capture your soul. soul. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it was like one of those. And um, so yeah, that's probably the worst. We worked a lot on the sound, but it's still probably the worst sound quality earth. But it doesn't but have a charm to it. Oh yeah. It's a great record. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so we recorded them every, every time they played for six or nine months and eventually put that record out. And then, so then after that I started, uh, what was it? I mean, the lineage is actually a little interesting. So Earl Howard led me to Jerry Hemingway, who was friends. They were friends. Total master improviser. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And Jerry Hemingway gave me the Tom and Jerry project, him and Thomas Lane. Okay. And Thomas Lane was somebody I'd heard about from Jim O'Rourke, but he had really not been recorded. Uh, But he was a genius synthesizer player. He had been recorded just on a few little things in in, uh, Europe. And I said, yeah, let me do that. And so then that was that was my fourth release. And then that, once actually European improvisers found out I was working with Thomas Lane, they got much more interested. You started getting submissions. Um, it, no, it was more like when I talked to them and, you know, I'm this goofy American kid coming out of nowhere and I brought up the name Thomas Lane, then they got more interested. Right. Burkhard Stangle, I remember specifically. Yeah, some sort of... Uh, uh, they, 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 it was they, like, oh, you're serious. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and I went to a festival in Vels in Austria, the Unlimited in, Festival. Yeah, yeah, in late '99, that was curated by uh, Otomo Yoshide, and that was a really important festival to me in the history of the music. It was the first European festival I ever went to. It was the first European festival. The guy who runs uh, improvised music from Japan, Yoshiyuki Suzuki, who's a, another really important kind of curator in Tokyo, uh, first European festival he ever went to. And like something like in this three-day festival, something like 20 musicians who ended up on erstwhile were there. <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean, it was And this it was, was your crazy. first encounter with him? With uh, hearing them and, and... No, but um, no, I went, I mean, I went there in part because of that. But yeah, some of them I had never heard of before. And like that who? Krebs, 
I had never heard of before. Uh-huh. Um, a few ex Sachiko Amin, Toshi Nakamura, I knew of, but they hadn't quite gotten that interesting yet. They were just on that cusp to still figuring out their sound. They yeah, were, I mean, they those were, are pretty unique artists. You just, yeah, yeah. But they had just started, and uh, they had. But it was great. I uh, and that was where I met Keith Rowe for the first time, who's you know the main person on my label, right? Um, and yeah, so many. So and you many were people. already uh, a fan of Keith's playing. Yeah, actually, I had tried to... Uh, so I knew Jim O'Rourke a little bit, and Jim had done a duo record when he was really young with Eddie Prevost, also of AMM. Right. And he knew a lot about AMM, and and uh, Keith is one of these people where, like Lauren Connors, too, I feel like his collaborators, the best collaborators, it doesn't have much to do with your musician. It has to do with how much you know about them as an artist jandek is probably the same way it probably it doesn't have so much to do with your own skills musician it has to do with how well you understand jandek i I would agree with that and so i wanted to do a jim o'rourke keith duo and they both agreed to it and um so i go to this festival in vels and i meet keith for the first time and we're in a booth backstage the musicians area and I'm sitting on one side with Keith next to me, and across the booth from us, three people I've just met the day before for the first time, the two voice crack guys Mm -hmm. and Gunter Mueller. And they happened to be all of Jim's, like, main collaborators at the time. Like, they had done three or four records with him, and and the Gunter O'Rourke duo was a big thing at that time. And so the first thing this legend, Keith Rowe, ever says to me is... So how do you see this duo with me and Jim going? Like how do you what, how do you visualize it? And and it took me a little bit, but I actually I had a good answer. And uh, but it was it was especially intimidating because his main collaborators are sta- sitting across the table and they're listening. They're yeah, you know, and they know like they know how to collaborate with Jim. I don't I don't really know right. Um, but I did have a good answer. And then what was the answer? The answer was, I think the answer, it's lost to time, but I think the answer is some was something like, basically, you'll just do your thing and he'll work around that. Something like that. Like, yeah. Some, something huh. like that. Like, Is yeah. that how the record turned out? No, the record never ended up happening. Why not? Uh, it just they it I ended up doing other Keith projects and um, it it Sorry. just didn't. Have you? Oh, that was it's good. I thought it was Thank a bug. I didn't mean to hit you. No, that's a chihuahua. Sorry about that. <laughs> Come here, Javi. Um, it it didn't end up happening. It didn't end up happening, but it's okay because at the that festival I got another Keith project and then uh, and that led to more and we ended up working so much together. Yeah, I mean he's probably best documented via erstwhile. I like to think so. Yeah, I yeah. mean, we've uh, we're very different people. We have very uh, we have very different tastes in most music, but we work really well together. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, we work really well together. And I'm I'm so proud of like of what I've done with him. Yeah, he he said to me at the start when I was trying to get him to do something, he said, "Well, Ramon Montoya, the great flamenco guitarists, only ever recorded." 30 minutes of music so why should i record more right um and i said well 
you've already recorded more than that, so you might as well keep Continue. going. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, there's certainly, uh, do, you, do you, when you think back, uh, you know, early, early, but even before the label, were you uh, an archivist uh, early on? Was that something that, that just sort of compelled you? You mean like, did I record concerts, that kind or of thing? Or in general. I mean, do you save things? Do you... Not, no, not obsessively, not really. I mean, I, I like my books and my CDs, but um, no, I, I, I was looking for something to do, and this ended up being something I was really good at, Plus, and, and that no one else was doing, really, the way I was doing it, and it dovetailed with this incredibly exciting time um, in music, I thought, and uh, and I still think I still think we're in that to an extent. I mean, as always with any kind of music, you know, there's loads of crap around, but um, I think that to me, it's to me, it's really exciting, and I've also I've tried to keep erstwhile fresh and and keep it changing and and keep it developing. I think that if you get stuck in in certain ideas or working with certain musicians or working in, in certain areas with their own boundaries, you know, you get stuck and I don't, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's the, you know, the mountain of shit that is inundating us at all times. It just gets higher and higher. And I've never felt more uh, in need of, properly run record labels as right. a listener exactly exactly uh, and, and i feel like there's a lot there's like a new generation of people that don't really get that importance and i mean so i've as a musician i've put out over a dozen records um i've been self-releasing for the last several years i've worked with maybe three or four labels and i i will say with one label specifically that i've worked uh Zodic, i've you know put out a couple of records published some articles in that case because the person who runs the label is you know a pretty remarkable musician he helped me develop in a way that was absolutely crucial to my development. Right. Do you feel, because you're not a participant in the music directly, right. do you feel like, it, was that an uncomfortable thing for you to sort of assert that? Um, a little bit at the start, but I, no, not really. I, I have always felt pretty confident in my opinions and, Actually, I think it helps that I'm not a musician. People have asked me at times to make records um, as a as a musician, and I always say I won't go, I won't cross that line. Wait, people have asked who people want you to play an instrument on a record or make a record. It doesn't have to, yeah, right. make a record. I know, yeah. you know, Mateen, Sabir. No, not not oh. a guy. M a t t i. -N. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He bugged me for years to do a record on his label, and I just said I'm not crossing that boundary the only thing i do is uh every four years i do an eight hour dj set at phil niblock's space right um where i'll sometimes uh where i interact with live musicians or that kind of thing but i don't i i feel like to me it gives me a um a distance and a perspective that people can't have and i don't need to sometimes i'll get a record and i don't need to do anything on it you know i don't i don't um, it's perfect as it is, and that's fine. I don't need to yeah, yeah, yeah. do anything. But um, there's times when my experience and my perspective uh, can be helpful. And, you know, I've learned little things over the years. One thing I like to do, if uh, 
if I feel like a part of a record is maybe too obvious or too straightforward, I'll just cut that part and make it the whole thing more oblique or more uh, more <laughs> abstract. Yeah, I'm more interested in how a record, it's, it's very strange in today's climate, but I've always been more interested in how a record sounds on the 10th or 20th listen than on the first. I mean... What, uh, describe that. Um, just that it's because the logic in the sound world that we're talking about is we were talking about before is maybe not so obvious. It maybe takes a little while to, to get to know. Um, so it doesn't all connect with you the first listen or two or, um, that kind of thing, but it's because it's not so obvious, it will continue to connect with, you'll continue to glean things out of it for years, hopefully. Yeah. That's, that's one of the goals. Yeah. That is a lot of improvised music when it hits the recording really doesn't ask for a second listen. Yeah. Um, and that's what I tried to get away from. That's what I, so that's, that's, I think what I, one thing I've tried to get away with from the, away from since the start, like I said, um, so much, so much respect for the first generation FMP and M&M and Incus, you know, those guys, those guys laid the groundwork and that's great music. But when I came along, pushing it to the next level was, like I said, making records from it, you know, not just recordings. And, you know, records like uh, that you could go home and listen to, like Big Star, The Modern Lovers, yeah. or, you know, whatever. Um, but a re- something that was designed to best showcase this combination of musicians, but on a record, which doesn't necessarily overlap with uh, the live experience. That, for me, has been a creative bridge that I am only now getting comfortable having built where it's been difficult for me because I make records. I, you know, I, and I've always felt sort of self-conscious and critical or criticized, um, by other improvisers because there is so much going in and sort of tweaking and refining things when in actuality, why wouldn't, my question has always been, why wouldn't you do those things? Well, there is, I mean, on the other hand, it's really, really, really easy to go too far and to make it sound like, it's all kind of smoothed out and sure. uh and 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 that's not what I'm interested in um either. So there's definitely it's a tricky balance. So I'll give you a record before you leave. I made a record um a few years ago, a trio recording with Nate Woolley and Evan Parker. And we played a concert. It was agreed upon that we would record the concert and if the results were good, we'd release it. I listened back to it. I emailed them and said, let me know if you're comfortable with this. I'm going to hyper mix this record. I'm going to leave everything in order as it happened. Mm-hmm. But, you know, moment to moment, whatever the music's, music's asking for, maybe I'll accentuate the reverb or I'll do this, that, and the other. They both gave me the thumbs up. And that's what that record is. And, you know, just from a logical standpoint of being someone who's mixing a record, what you're doing is going moment to moment and sort of doing what the music asks. Yeah. And certainly if if I heard about a recording somewhere, like an unearthed duo improv recording of, you know, two masters who are long gone, I want to hear it as it is. But as a creative person making a record, I've never understood why I mean, obviously I'm honoring the creative spirit. I I just I've never been able to But also people get caught in the trap like a recording in and of itself isn't necessarily honest. Like it's not perfectly balanced it's not the same as you would if you're sitting 
you know, closer to Nate uh-huh. or you're sitting closer to Evan, you're going to hear a different mix live. Absolutely. You know, and, and people get caught up like there's one true live experience and almost no one encounters that. No, well, the other thing is as a musician, you, for me personally, um, I'm trying to express to a listener what I feel and what I hear. Right. And obviously, I mean, certainly with a lot of the stuff on Earthwile, these sounds are so small that what the person creating them is going to be very different from the person who's hearing them in the audience. One. But, and I wrote it in the liner notes to this record with Evan. I was nervous as shit on that gig. <laughs> and I sort of wanted to translate that somehow to the listening experience. Yeah. And I think I did. Yeah. Um, but that, you know, I, I feel like, especially with improvised music, there is an aspect of autobiography to it. And certainly having, you know, cr- creativity in the mix is going to help me translate that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tricky thing. And I would say most people are not good at it. And... um Especially, I think it's hard for musicians to do that too much to their own work because they're too close to it. Yeah. And it helps if there's an outside person, which is where I come in. Unfortunately, there's very few outside people who are good at it. Yeah. You know, and who can can work, who can understand the musician's aesthetic without superimposing their own. Right, without interfering and... I remember when I when Evan Parker's big electroacoustic project started, I saw one of the very first performances in, in Victoriaville, mm-hmm. and it was fantastic, really interesting music. Like, I've very rarely been in a room where there's too much information flying around for me to process. <clears throat> I think it was his trio plus Sainko with an electronics processor on each of them, so yeah. like eight musicians. And in the... You've been to Victoriaville probably. I've not. Oh, Okay. It was in like a big, uh, a big theater, and just so much sound flying around, and really, really raw and exciting. And the first record came out on ECM a few months later, and it was typical ECM, like rounded off. Uh, you know, I always think <laughs> this is before your time, but one of the one of the really, really early Saturday Night Live with like John Belushi, there was a, a skit called Pre-Chewed Charlie's. Uh huh. It was connected. Do you remember um, Beefsteak Charlie's in New York? Yeah. <laughs> so it was. It was around. There were there were ubiquitous Beefsteak Charlie ads in New York at the time, and so they did. To the, they would they would Dan Aykroyd would come to your table and chew up the beef for you, and you know then they'd give it to you, and right. you know you're going to get spoiled at pre-chewed Charlie's tonight. And to me, that's that's what those records sound like. Like they've they've done the chewing for you. Like hmm. uh, it's like. It's it's there's no steak to sink your teeth into. Hmm. It's uh yeah. Hmm. So that's my that's yeah. So I asked I've only met Evan a few times. Um and I uh I asked him about that and uh if you know that was if he was happy with that and I don't know. I, I didn't know how I don't know how honest an answer I got cuz he barely knew me, but uh he said he was happy with uh, the way it was and and but to me it was again not that you're trying to recreate a live experience but just homogenized just not what yeah. i'm looking for in music yeah and it took it just it took out a lot i mean again i saw that that um combination live and it, it, to me the record took out a lot of what made it exciting yeah that's so fucking weird when that happens like uh, <laughs> yeah, i think it's i think 
One thing I've I've been a little surprised at is, you know, I have so much respect for so many of the great musicians I work with, people who can, you know, do a free improv, um, like a magical free improv set just out of nowhere, mm -hmm. um, consistently over and over again, different combos and how little that skill seems to translate to making records, how few of them are good at making records. Going into a studio. Or just... Uh, showcasing themselves in a recorded format, showcasing yeah. themselves to the best effect in a recorded format. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it is so consistently uh, uh, an issue, so consistently. And, and, you know, with improvised music, I generally tend to prefer to hear it in person. Since you started the label, do you feel like who you are as a label and what your responsibilities are, has it changed? Sure. Sure, I think at some point I kind of became um, the almost like a figurehead. Like it's it's a really nice thing to say, but Keith Rowe has said a few times that I created this area of music, uh -huh. and I don't think that's true. But I did kind of loop together people in a way that hadn't really been done before, and make kind of a global community where there wasn't as much of one before. And that is something that I've, that I've tried to do. And I've toned down, I've, I'm, I'm incredibly opinionated and I've toned that down a little bit over the years. Like you've Part publicly said things or? Oh yeah. I was, I was, I don't, where? I, I don't, do you remember uh, the old jazz corner site? No. I, I don't. Uh, maybe before your time, but it was like a yeah. comment board. Yeah, but it was like a big deal. Yeah. And, uh, Did you piss yeah. some people off? Oh, yeah. Did you burn bridges? Getting, uh, I mean, maybe, but not with anyone I especially cared about. But I, <laughs> right. I mean, you know, like Gary Giddens would come on for a chat and uh, I would get into his face because his entire best of list was US. Literally Ooh. every single person on the <laughs> end of the year. And it's just like... No, this isn't 1958. Sorry, no. Right. Um, that kind of... Ken Vandermark, I pissed off. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Um, Ken's a great guy. He doesn't, he doesn't like me. Well, you know, you can't, you can't win it. You can't please everyone. No, it's all right. As long as I'm being... Yeah. I'm yeah. being true to myself. So, I can do. so in now... I mean, how, how is the label... I don't want to ask that. That's a stupid question. Um... What what role do you see for yourself now in the current world of I, I'm realizing now how connected things are. Um so in the world that we all live in right now, with this idiot in office in two thousand seventeen, the way people are experiencing information, the way we are sharing things with one another. Right. I don't I don't think that's something I can react to so directly, but one thing I did, one thing I started in two thousand twelve or two thousand thirteen um, was Eddie? I don't. I don't know how much you know about AMM history, but uh, they Keith Rowe left the band in two thousand and four um, over some irreconcilable differences with with Eddie Prevost, even mm -hmm. though they'd been together for almost forty years, and now they're kind of back together. But uh, one reason he left was. Uh, over the idea of communitarianism. And for Eddie, communitarianism uh, was a geographic thing. So you could only, you should make music 
and in your geographic community. And so he had a big issue with Mimeo, for instance, who was kind of an all-star group of laptop improvisers from around Europe. Mm -hmm. He just didn't think that should be a project. And Keith and myself have always believed in a kind of global communitarianism where you bring together common people, you know, no matter where they're from. Like when I started Keith working with Toshi Nakamura from Tokyo, they both said it was like their long lost brother. Yeah. And to me, that's, um, that's very exciting. And it's also something that I can add. Uh, I've also put together people who live in the same city who haven't worked together, but, but that's a different thing. But, um, but in 2013, I decided, um, that I should, I should give a nod to the geographic idea of communitarianism. And I started this thing called, uh, First AEU, which is basically to showcase young American experimental musicians. Okay. And I've done seven releases on there and have a bunch more in the works. And that's been a really exciting thing for a couple reasons. First of all, um, as you may or may not know, uh, it's it's hard for, it was for a long time, maybe not as much anymore, but for a long time it was hard for American experimental musicians, not in like the jazz mode, to get respect outside of America. Um, they just didn't get taken seriously yeah, in they Europe. They didn't get booked? Or, yeah. 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 Or they just didn't, you know, they were just not taken seriously. Like, you know, they're not like Europeans are professionals. These are just people fucking around. Mm-hmm. Um, and this helped with that. And also it helped with actual communitarianism. There's so many interesting musicians from my perspective around the US, but they're all in pockets of like one, two, three. And this got them uh to communicate more uh within each other and, and and hopefully leads to other things. So that's kind of my that's the closest I I would say that I get or that I will get to um reacting to the crazy, stupid times we live in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's only so much I can do. Uh, right. Yeah. Right on. Well, this was good. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Well, we can talk more, but... <laughs> uh, How long was that? It seems pretty short. Just over an hour. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. Okay. Uh, I mean, the label's going strong. Well, as strong as any as any label can be in yeah. this... Uh, yeah. You, I, you're not going to ask me about any, like, uh, specific... Well, people or any, I mean, I a, could. I mean, I, I mean, you well, have your own. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, my my experience of erstwhile. Uh, I, I mean, honestly, it was a source, uh, a portal to a sound world that, um, and I haven't extensively delved the catalog. I think yeah. I have five or six releases. Okay. Um, I just, you know, I, I quite honestly, here was here was the, the the step. I went to a concert at Issue Project Room in two thousand three maybe 2004 and it was tim barnes and um barry weisblatt and maybe nate woolley and i mean i never it was like i remember looking at my friend and i was like it's like a concert but there's no music happening what the (laughs) fuck is this you know and it just it really i didn't honestly like it didn't i didn't like it but i really didn't understand it yeah so i you know i nate was a friend and i asked him about small sounds and he's like well you should really check out you know greg kelly you should check out emperor and all this different stuff yeah and i began checking out the stuff and you know um 
it completely it was it was certainly a, def- a moment in my life where I heard something and I became aware of of a whole world of music that I had li- like I didn't know I didn't know about it right and it was you know it was a great moment for me right um, it it completely I don't know if since then I've I've r- discovered a world of music like that that yeah ha- just seems to have its comp- you know and it's a broad world yeah. Um, it's a very broad world. I think that's what does doesn't quite get enough uh, enough press. I worked with over a hundred musicians, you yeah. know, from from around the world. I think it's easy for people to look at it and think it's a very narrow world and kind of similar music, but it really spans the spectrum. Like you know, yeah. I've I've done I did a record with Marcus Schmickler and and Peter Reberg that you know is is. I've done a bunch of like kind of crazy noise records, Kevin yeah. Drum and Jason Lescalite. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, but that those musics like people get really tribal, you oh, know, definitely. and and those and they get really nationalistic and yeah. in a way that to me always has rubbed me the wrong way. Simply because I've always retreated into the world of music to escape and transcend these things of the material world that I hate, you know? Sure. And, but, and, and I think when you talk about noise music or you talk about, you know, whatever you want to call it, you right. know, lowercase music or whatever, like they're, 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 they're not that dissimilar. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's a big statement. It's a big uh, statement. I, I, I have no problem actually with people with that kind of thing. I just think, uh, it, yeah, I think I think you know in a perfect world everyone would just live and let live, but uh, it's not a perfect world. Like there's there's you want to bring attention to things you care about because if they don't get a certain amount of attention, they're going to disappear. Um, labels disappear because people don't pay attention to them enough. So I think there's some some value to that kind of thing. Um, I know in the jazz corner days, I I fought a lot with people and wasted a lot of time in really stupid fights like aesthetic battles of like yeah but um yeah i started actually there because they were f- not totally traditional jazz but it was like a jazz community and um this guy kept coming on and arguing how like Paul Dunwall mm-hmm. and um people like that this was like such exciting music and like so much more extreme and um please check this out and he kept like arguing and arguing i felt compelled to go on and argue from the other side that we we've already moved past paul dunwall and Mm -hmm. you know there's people who hear that and feel like that's that's interesting but that's last generation's music Mm um so but so yeah, a lot of arguments, and I was obnoxious, and some of it was deserved. Some you regret of, some any of it that? wasn't. No, and then the archives are all gone now. Um, okay. Uh, no, I don't really regret any of it. Yeah. Uh, but because it also led to a bunch of people becoming longtime fans who who never would have known about it otherwise. Yeah. You know, and some people who I'm still in touch with, and um. Sometimes you need to to do that to get yourself noticed. I think the music is established enough now that you don't really need to. But in its early days, you know, there were people arguing like they always do. You know, it's not music. It's not. Right. Uh, I mean, you can imagine you're a you're like a a sophisticated listener, and that's what you felt coming into Tim and and Barry, which is even 
kind of relatively conventional in the world. Like imagine if you had stumbled into Sachiko doing like a right. solo sine wave right. thing. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And that's, there was a lot of arguing about that at the time, like, uh, which I think we're, we're probably past now, but I, I, I think one thing that's a little bit sad about social media is that there's not much real arguing anymore. People just, um, if if there's an annoying dissent on your timeline, you just block them and they're gone. Or in half an hour, there'll be have been so much stuff that already happened that it's just buried in the right, 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 right. That that was another good thing about message boards is you could have ongoing discussions over yeah. months or years. Yeah. Um, and we still have one. We have I hate music, but it's not very active. And 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 you think people debate less now? Publicly, anyway. Publicly, I'm what's, sure so what's the value of doing it publicly? Because it, that other people can see it, and that it's, it and, and it's that the back and forths and the pros and cons are there for other people to stumble upon. Right. Um, yeah, and I think that's that it can help people to to learn about things they didn't know about and to. Um, maybe look at things in a different way than they had uh, otherwise. Yeah. And there's a vibrancy to it. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, maybe not quite as much anymore, but when I started erstwhile and for a long time, it came directly out of the jazz free improv tradition Mm -hmm. from my perspective. I mean, there was a lot of modern classical influence depending on the musicians also, but that was the tradition that it was attempting to continue. And, so to bring some, there were things I think that jazz fans could connect to if they, if they knew about it and you know they they tried. Yeah, that's always a frustration. That's a frustration that I have. You know, I had a very long conversation with uh, a friend, a notable friend, about this the other day. Of you know my own personal frustration of why my music, the work that I put out, is not being discussed. Or it's just, you know, there's certain, like, it should be in more places than it is. Right. And, you know, you don't need a Rosetta Stone to see how these things, you know, are very related to one another. Right, right. You know? Everything now also gets uh, gets just floated pie. It, it, things come out, um, maybe there's some notice right away, and then everything disappears in, in a few months. It's, I think it's really unhealthy in a way. I mean, the democratization of it's great. Like, people can just put out a record and if they want and maybe it's great but uh i think that i yeah i think the fact that everything is so ephemeral is not healthy there's certainly and i think across the board not just within music um people i think whether consciously or not have decided that making a statement is a bad idea <laughs> like it's about not making a statement it's yeah. about about blowing little wispy things into the ether that go away really quickly. Well, that can be a statement too, but um, yeah, and and yeah, that that's something that really bothers me. Like I said, if you're trying, if you're running a label that is focusing on, you know, uh, optimizing for the tenth or twentieth listen, and everything is really ephemeral, that's that's not yeah, ideal. You, but the, it's up the incline up that hill is getting yeah. steeper. But erstwhile is, is established enough now that I think it's okay and. Uh, um, people know what people people know generally. You know what to expect that they they get something and it's it's not predictable and 
it hopefully will be challenging, even if it's yeah. musicians they already know. Do you see young young people discovering the label? Definitely, yeah. definitely. And that's another thing that's been good about uh, Earth Day U is it's all um, younger people. Yeah, and a lot of uh, I mean, I put out one record by uh, a kid who was twenty or twenty one. Yeah, and uh, and that's hard. Also, for a long time in in my music. There was well, there was almost no one in their twenties who was that interesting because it just took you longer to get to right. where you were developed enough that you were interesting and had something to say in that kind of abstract way. Um, very few exceptions, and uh, I think that's changing now. Also, I think that there's there's more younger people, or at least some younger people, that are maybe more developed earlier on and that certainly has something to do with the age that we live in and be able to access things much earlier um and in this case actually uh not to pat myself on the back but it has to do with erstwhile and like people um these these kids always tell me like you know they grew up listening to erstwhile and yeah. uh, so they've internalized that and and when i started that that imprint the aau imprint i thought i was gonna have to do a lot of work on the individual projects to bring them up to a standard i was happy with and i found that i really don't have to that the history of the label does a lot of the work for me and people Uh not that they're copying things but they understand the general aesthetic that i've built and they try to create their own um maybe they put in more time or um more thought and and um yeah the records i've gotten have been great i'm really happy with yeah. that print yeah 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 i mean i've always you know i was having a conversation with a friend about this last night you know about uh the last sev- you know the records that sonny rollins has made since the 70s like arguably not his strongest work something i just talked about with someone that's funny well i mean we're right here at the bridge that's why we were talking yeah. about it um yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, to me, it's just, it's always, I've never been a big Sonny Rollins fan, to be honest, but I think it's really lame that he doesn't, he he never picked, for so many decades, he hasn't picked sidemen who can play with him. You know, it's just like, uh, it's, it's, Cecil Taylor did that a little bit too, but not nearly as much. Right. I've always been the kind of person, or in the last several years, I've been the kind of person that I like the later arguably shitty records and a big part of it for me is to put it into the context of that person's arc and their output sure. and you know when someone dies a great musician dies then you really have the opportunity to kind of put all the pieces together right. and, and see what it was um though those records from the 80s and the 70s are you put them beside the bridge like th- that is a complete picture and and there's something about um there's something really exciting about being able to kind of take part in that arc. And, you know, you put, if you're putting out a record by a 20-year-old, I hope that when that 20-year-old is 40 years old, his records don't sound like they did when he was 20. No. And I've, I've worked with a bunch of musicians now over, you know, I started in 99. And, uh, you know, so there's, there's I've put out uh, records by musicians 15 years apart yeah. or whatever. And I, I love that um, there's all these kind of internal series um totally on erstwhile uh you can you know you can make so many of your own like four or five records sub series just you know connecting a musician or yeah connecting a city or whatever um and yeah I, I i love that and i think that's 
I think it's important to to do both to have continuing relationships with musicians uh, that you think continue to do exciting work, but also to try to introduce new people to the new musicians mm-hmm. to the label um, who have something to add. So I've, I've I always try to keep a balance on that. Yeah, I, I like those uh, sort of. In general, like this, you just said it. You know, fifteen years between records with a particular artist, yeah. it's like they've gone out to the wilderness and they've come <laughs> back with you know scars, right, and, right, you right, know, right. Like war that, uh, that Bratzman Bennick record in the Black Forest. Yeah, <laughs> that's a really bizarre record. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right on. Uh, and are you still doing the Amplify Festival? I mean, I do it on and off depending on when. I I, I can't really afford to do them myself. Yeah. Um. So I kind of need help. You know, like when Zorn gave me the the stone for two weeks, that was a, a way to do one. Also, I don't like to repeat myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they kind of have to have an idea. I guess the last one we did was fall 2015. And I've had a couple ideas, but uh, it takes help. And yeah, it's a lot of work. Yeah, it's not a... I do think it's important, and I do think no one else really does festivals the way I do them. Mm-hmm. Um so I, but you know that's I don't have the money or the um, the energy. I think the important thing always is for me is always the records and the yeah uh, the live shows. I think were crucial, but basically a way to create new energy in the area and 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 keep it going again to serve the records. Yeah, because well, what I think is you know not everyone can get to concerts. You know they're in a few big cities, and I've tried to do them around the world, but. Still, there's plenty of people who can never, you know, who are huge erstwhile fans and will never get to a concert. And to me, to me, the label is more for them. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And I think you can you can you can only do so much, right? You know, and I actually think a lot of that music, you know, if you could be at home on a quiet night, the tea or whiskey, whatever you're into, and just you know sit with that music in your space is actually a really nice way to experience it. I mean, again, it depends. Like for instance, Michael Pissarro. Does almost to- has very little overlap in the in the pieces he plays live and the recordings that yeah. he's made um, because of that. You know, there's just it's a different thing. Some things come across better on record. Some things make more sense live, and so the festivals are always uh, kind of tuned to that. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for coming over, man. Sure. Thanks nice for having talk. me. All right, that was my conversation with John Abbey. How'd we do? Erstwhile people, are we okay? Do you know? Did I did I did I do all right? Uh, I dug that. You know, like I said a couple weeks ago, uh, I'm enjoying talking to people who are involved with with music making, though they might not necessarily be the guys making it. Uh, John's a good example of that, and and I really dug it. And if you're not already familiar with Erstwhile Records, you're not already familiar with this musical universe, you know, get familiar. It's good shit. Erstwhilerecords.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please go to patreon.com slash 5049 podcast. You can throw in a few bucks. You can help out. And um, I've got some cool shit I'm going to be giving out to donors pretty soon. A special surprise. That's it. You guys are all doing well, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.